And we're still with that enduring word. And Mark 11, today we're going to be looking at uh, verses 12 to 19. Give you a second to get there if uh, you're flipping pages. That's sort of a, um, a dying art, finding scripture, I'm finding, uh, because everyone uses their phones or digital devices. And uh, I want to encourage you, even if you do tend to use your digital device, have an actual print Bible. Um, this is my preaching Bible, so you don't see all the things I write in it. Um, but if you go to my house and you peek at one of my Bibles, you see scribbles all over the place. And um, those, those are very important for us to remember what God has already taught us in the past so that we're building on it and building on it and building on it. Um, we're not relearning the same things over and over again, uh, but we're, we're continuing to learn afresh uh, new things from his scriptures. So I do encourage you uh, to continue to use a, a, a print Bible. Um, that's, a, that's a really good thing for you to continue to be in the habit in or get into the habit in uh, if uh, you don't already do that. So with that being said, uh, let us turn to Mark 11, verses 12 to 19. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's pray. Father, grant us ears to hear and eyes to see this morning. Help us to know the riches of your grace and your wisdom. Help us to believe what you say to us. Help us to do what you tell us to do, building our house upon the rock. Use this time and use these words to accomplish your great purposes in us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, when I was uh, taking my counseling degree, one of the things that we didn't study but someone did a report on was something called transactional analysis. It's a not very popular psychological theory. Uh, what they do is they take the, the Freudian concepts of, uh, you know, the id, the ego, and the superego and transform it into different terminology, and uh, what they do is they analyze the speaker and the person spoken to and say, oh, they're speaking from 
the superego to someone's id and these things. That's how they analyze things. And it gets formed into a, a kind of the games people play. And I think, uh, I, th I remember, hopefully, uh, the, the Alan Parsons Project song, Games People Play, some of you might be familiar with that if you're old like me, uh, <clears throat> was based on transactional analysis. Why am I talking about this? Because I think there are games being played in this text. Games being played in Jerusalem. Uh, that if we were, if Alan Parsons were to rewrite it and think about it in terms of this passage, it would be either the religious games people play or the games religious people play. I can't really settle on which one of these two things it is, uh, but they are similar. That's going to be the idea that really drives, I think, what is going on in these two passages uh, that encompass one day. And uh, what we're seeing, for those of you who haven't been with us, Jesus and his disciples here in Mark's gospel have finally gotten to Jerusalem. Uh, he doesn't talk about the earlier trips to Jerusalem. He's focused on this one because this is the one where the Son of Man is going to give his life as a ransom for many. And so uh, they've arrived the previous day, they went back to Bethany and spent the night, and now this recounts everything that happens on the first day as they begin to return to Jerusalem. So what happens as Jesus and his disciples return to Jerusalem? And we'll look at this from verses 12 to 14. They leave Bethany, which is the house of dates, and uh, they're on their way. And they're going to move through Bethphage, which is the house of figs, and into Jerusalem, as we see at the bottom of our little map over there, okay? And it's along the way that Jesus is hungry. This should be a little confusing to us. It's about a two-mile journey. It's about an hour on the road. Why didn't Jesus eat enough before he left? You know, it's like traveling in a car with children, you know, you get five minutes down the road and they got to go to the bathroom. It's like, well, didn't you go when we left, before we left? So it's sort of like that. It's, why is Jesus hungry now? Well, I think it's because Jesus has a purpose for his hunger. There's a reason that he is trying to uh, take a side trip, so to speak, on their journey back into Jerusalem that morning, uh, seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf. And this, this kind of is a distraction that Jesus wants them to engage in, so to speak. It's spring because it's time for the Passover. The leaves are out. And uh, here in places like Tucson, we had the leaves coming out earlier. If you go back to where I grew up, there are no leaves on trees right now. It's not early, it's not spring enough. It's still winter in those places. But he sees this tree in leaf. And now, Mark notes that it's not yet the season for figs. The figs come into their fullness late summer, early fall. But what happens in the spring is that a healthy fig tree will produce what is called an early fig or green figs that grow. 
And these are little nodules, and they're edible as well. They're not nearly as tasty as the fig, but they are edible. And they are expected, as I said, to be found on a healthy tree. Now, they're not technically figs. But Jesus goes and he examines this tree, which is in leaf, and it is spring, and he couldn't find anything on it. Jesus didn't just walk away. Jesus pronounced a curse upon the tree. May no one ever eat from you again. And precisely because Mark notes that it was not the season for figs, there have been a lot of people that have given Jesus a lot of grief about this. That Jesus somehow is being harsh, that Jesus is somehow being uncaring, that Jesus is being um, overly demanding and irresponsible. In fact, one of the great atheists, or should I say well-known atheists, uh, or infamous atheists, Bertrand Russell, in his book, Why I Am Not a Christian, refers specifically to this event as one of the reasons he's not a Christian. Because he sees Jesus in a negative light because of this passage. But I'll suggest to you that Jesus is not being petty, that Jesus is not being demanding, and from the early beginnings of the church, we find that they understood this in a very different way. For instance, the earliest uh, existing copy of a, a commentary on this gospel, Mark, uh, was written by Victor of Antioch. Anyone ever heard of Victor? I hadn't either. <laughs> Don't worry. Um, but this is the earliest copy that we have of this. And in this, he says, he teaches that this is an object lesson that is meant to be understood in light of what's going to follow for the rest of the day as Jesus goes to the temple. And we see that as well within the structure because the beginning of the next day, we see the disciples noting what has happened to the fig tree. And so Jesus is not simply talking about a fig tree, but Jesus is using the reality of the fig tree. Okay? It's a real fig tree. Jesus really said this, but he's using the reality of the fig tree to make an important point that the disciples need to learn immediately. Wants them to, to recognize what they're about to see when they go to Jerusalem. And this should be natural for them, normal for them to make this connection. Israel was very often compared to a vineyard or to fruit, particularly trees that don't bear the expected fruit. For instance, in Isaiah 5, uh, there's a whole song about God's vineyard. And that vineyard is Israel. And we see in places like verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Okay, spells it out for them. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so this 
song in Isaiah 5 points to the reality that, that God expected righteousness and justice to be the fruits that were born upon this tree, uh, this Israel, this vine called Israel, and what he sees instead is bloodshed and lament because of wickedness. Similarly, similarly, I always mess up that word. I don't know why I mess up that word. I am incapable of saying it properly the first time through. Jeremiah 8, verse 7, uh, 13. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. So Israel is like a worthless fig tree or a worthless vine that bears no fruit. And so this is a a prophetic action on the part of Jesus to reveal to the disciples that he is about to inspect Israel and Israel is not going to be bearing fruit The tree looked healthy. It was busy. <laughs> okay, There's leaves. It's not barren. And yet, it wasn't bearing the expected fruit, nor the beginnings of that expected fruit. The tree was not living up to its calling, and likewise, we're going to see that Israel was not living up to its calling. As the one through whom all things were made, Jesus has the authority to evaluate this tree and to judge this tree. His judgment of the tree is based on inspection, not simply appearances. You know something of this? We have a fruit tree in our backyard, and uh, this lemon tree has fared better than the orange tree that was in the backyard of our home in Florida. That was one that never received any irrigation. And every once in a while it would trick me because I would see blossoms on that orange tree. And I would get excited, honey, honey. And of course, it was in the backyard. We'd forget all about it and we wouldn't water it and those blossoms would just fall off the tree. But we have irrigation here in Arizona for our lemon tree. And yet that was insufficient this past year as we got no fruit from our lemon tree. We've got blossoms, though, this year. We'll see if they turn into fruit. Okay? Jesus looks. There's nothing. This account of the fig tree is before, and as I said, after Jesus' trip to the temple. The tree is meant to point us to the temple. And so Jesus bases on, uh, judges, rather, based on reality, not simply appearances. So, Okay, Steve, you said this anticipates what's going to happen in Jerusalem. How does this anticipate Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem? So let's look at his arrival in Jerusalem in 15 through 19. He comes in and he goes apparently directly to the temple. It doesn't talk about him going anywhere else. And he began to drive out those who sold and bought. Now, if you are amongst the zealots, you are probably hoping he would show up at Pontius Pilate's palace and toss those people out because what you're wanting is for Jesus to free you from the oppression of Rome. And that's not where Jesus goes. Jesus goes to the temple. 
And yet, Jesus is violent. He's casting people out. The same word that is used earlier in this gospel for the, the exorcism of demons. He's exercising the temple. He's getting the unclean spirits, the unclean people, out of the temple. In particular, it's those who bought, those who sold, not just one side of the equation, both sides of that equation. The messenger that we, we saw last week and talked about in Malachi 3, who has the Lord who has suddenly come to his temple, that now is evaluating his temple and he's removing the impurities in his temple. What's going on? Well, if you're a pilgrim, it's kind of hard to bring your sacrificial animals all the way from, say, Galilee. And so what had happened is that they had established four markets on the Mount of Olives, since that's the main road coming into Jerusalem, okay, from that portion of uh, the north. That most people would be coming in on, on that road through the, over the Mount of Olives. Four different opportunities for you to buy your sacrificial animals, Okay. Or to exchange your coins for the coin, as we see uh, in Exodus uh, 30, the coin uh, that is suitable for the temple tax. Okay. That all has to take place. That's understood. Okay. Problem is that Caiaphas who was the high priest shortly before the time of Jesus. Uh, we see him still functioning as an authority in the Gospel of John. But what Caiaphas did is said, I'm not really sure I want those courts, I'm sorry, those markets that are under the control of the Sanhedrin to get all the money. The high priest and the Sanhedrin, the rulers, did not always get along. It's, it's as you might imagine vying for power. And so he established markets in the court of the Gentiles to make it easier on the people. But it also meant more money in his pocket and less in the pocket of the Sanhedrin. Let's think about this in two ways. One, Josephus, the historian who, who uh, did his writing after the days of Jesus and leading up to the great Jewish war uh, and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, uh, he notes that in one year for Passover, which is where, why Jesus is in Jerusalem right now, 255,000 lambs were purchased and slaughtered for the celebration of Passover. Okay? That's a whole lot of money for a whole lot of animals. And that's just the lambs. That doesn't include the doves or anything else that's going to be sacrificed. This is a big enterprise. And it's sort of like the airport. What happens when you're at the airport? Okay. They, you charge airport prices for food. They've got you. Trapped. 
You pay a special higher price for the privilege of buying food at the airport. I remember I was trapped in uh, San Diego. Yeah, that was a fun one. I couldn't really walk my laps to get my steps in because it was a long layover. And uh, I, th I think what they wanted for a California pizza, kitchen pizza, was like 15, 16 bucks. And it's not going to feed a family of four. Even if it was just me. They got you. You're paying it. These people had you. You're paying the premium. That's the point. Jesus overturned tables. He overturned the seats of those who were selling doves. There's all kinds of things that are going on here. But what we see is the anger of Jesus is resulting in action. And what we should walk away with uh, thinking about this is that, first off, anger isn't always unrighteous. Sometimes anger is righteous. But Jesus is angry not because he has been hurt. Jesus is angry because his kingdom has been corrupted. His people are being taken advantage of. We're all too familiar with unrighteous anger. This morning, I want to hunt down the man who broke the door, uh, sorry, the window on my daughter's car, and I want to find him, and I want to hurt him. That's unrighteous anger. What that person did was unrighteous, but I am not pursuing justice. I'm pursuing vengeance in my heart. And unfortunately, the police probably won't find these people, but Jesus knows who they are. So I have to take rest in that reality. So, Jesus is angry. Jesus is acting in a way that some of us might think is irrational and over the top. But it's not. He teaches the people why he's responding in this particular way. And the first part of this says, you know, he's teaching them and saying, is it not written? In other words, shouldn't you already have known this? <laughs> shouldn't your scribes have been teaching you this? Shouldn't the Sanhedrin have been heeding this? Shouldn't Caiaphas, the great high priest, have already known this? He rebukes them through the word that had already been written. In particular, Isaiah 56, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. The court of the Gentiles existed because God already had and had already communicated to his people, Israel, that he had a heart for the Gentiles. That it was not just them that were going to experience salvation, but that God was eventually going to bring these Gentiles into his kingdom. God eventually was going to show mercy and grace to these Gentiles and they're to be brought in. And so that's why there was this court of the Gentiles. It was supposed to be a place of prayer. But now they've excluded the Gentiles because there's no room for them to come and pray because Caiaphas has set up the animal sellers and the money changers. 
Do you understand why this might get Jesus angry? They are prohibiting people from coming and hearing the word of God and experiencing salvation because faith comes through hearing. God has a heart for the nations. And they were not, they were not uh, mirroring or reflecting that same heart for the nations. But Jesus continues and he quotes from Jeremiah 7 this time. You have made it a den of robbers. This is the place where they all go and they're all safe and they count their money. They have, they, their heart, rather, was for money and for rituals. As long as the rituals keep happening, the money keeps coming in. Caiaphas was not concerned with the forgiveness of God's people, not concerned with the redemption of God's people, but Caiaphas seems to be concerned with fleecing God's people. Making money and undermining the Sanhedrin, who were no angels themselves. Now the context in Jeremiah 7 is this. Go back and and read it. I encourage you. But Israel had been sinning big. It talks about how there, there was violence, about how there was oppression, how there was murder, how there was adultery, how there was thievery, all of these things. And the people thought they were safe. Even though they'd gone to the point of even sacrificing to Baal. They thought they were safe because they had the temple and they showed up for worship. They had fallen into superstition. They had separated the sacrifices from faith and repentance. That's what they had done. As long as I show up and as long as I give my dove or my sacrifice my lamb, everything is okay. This is a form of cheap grace that they had fallen into through the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes. As I think about this, I can't help but think of Michael Corleone. One of the key scenes in The Godfather is when his child is getting baptized. While that child is being baptized, Michael Corleone's minions are going throughout the city of New York and eliminating his rivals. And by eliminating, I mean killing He had the audacity to be there and to renounce Satan and his works while he's performing the works of Satan. That's a religious game. That's what these people were doing. That's what the system was encouraging. The problem was not the provisional sacrificial system The problem was wicked human hearts, which twist the system, which separate it from what God intended to join it together with, which is faith and repentance. But because of the hardness of their hearts, they turned it into a religious game. Forgiveness had become transactional and profitable. To put it another way, this temple was... Full of leaves. It was a busy temple. 
but there was no fruit in the temple. Jesus' actions are a response to their corruption of true religion by turning it into a religious game. They're, they're forsaking the holiness of the temple. And some of that is seen in Jesus' prohibiting them from bringing the vessels back and forth. Zechariah 14, for instance. Every pot in Jerusalem shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a traitor, not a traitor, or, but traitor, in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Jesus is purifying the temple. This didn't go over well. It never does when the stranger shows up in the house and seeks to clean it from its uncleanness. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him. This is the first time we see them really kind of going to this extreme. Jesus has talked about how they're going to kill him. And now Mark says they want to kill him. Not just wanting to, trying to find a way to. They're plotting and they're planning to kill Jesus. Jesus has been winning the hearts of the people. He's exposing the corruption of the leadership of Israel, and therefore, this Jesus must die. We see Jesus, who gives his life as a ransom for many, that the many might be saved. And then we also see the religious leaders who will take his life away to destroy him. But think of what Jesus is going to destroy in his death. His is the true ransom, the final ransom, the ultimate sacrifice, the one that ends all the other sacrifices. The provisional sacrifices are going to be done away with because once for all time, this Jesus is going to lay down his life to remove the sin of his people. So Jesus judges the religious games that people play. And I guess we could say Jesus judges the religious people that play games. How can we avoid playing a religious game? Let's remember, Jesus continues to inspect and evaluate churches. Look at Revelation 1 through 3. Jesus, dressed in priestly garb, reigning as king, looks at the seven churches and pronounces them either healthy or diseased or dead. Jesus still inspects the churches. And it's serious that he inspects the churches. That's part of why we read from 1 Peter chapter 4. Now this is Peter speaking of his day, and this day continues. 
For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Jesus will judge the nations when he returns. If uh, that thief who broke into our car overnight, if he doesn't repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, he will face judgment at the, the throne of God. Jesus sets up the throne at the end of time. May they repent. But the point is, is that we still have human hearts that are seduced by religious games. It's easy to get caught up in numbers, for instance, to pursue numbers, to fill that building, build that budget. Every pastor feels that pressure. Sometimes that pressure comes from the elders or the people. And I'm thankful that I don't feel that pressure from others to do that. Because that's what leads to compromise of the truth. So I have to deal with my own sinful temptations to compromise the truth. Not necessarily from you. It's easy to fall into keeping the machine running. And by the machine, I just mean all the programming. Funny, COVID put a big stop to a lot of programming, at least for a while, and our, our people had to, to reinvent how they go about that programming. But maybe some of that programming should have died because it wasn't bearing fruit. It was keeping people busy, but not bearing fruit. Our goal as leadership is not to keep you busy. What we want to see is the fruit being born. The fruit that comes from or is included in that idea of discipleship. The things we've been talking about in the Vine Project. Okay, That kind of fruit being born. People seeking God in worship. People bearing the fruit of the Spirit. People mortifying their sin. People being bold and proclaiming the good news of Jesus to their neighbors and their friends who don't know Jesus. That kind of fruit. So how, how does this fruit get born? Fruit ultimately depends, well, the work of Jesus um, but also, how we listen to the Word. How we listen to the Word in Sunday school. How we listen to the Word in the sermon. How we listen to the Word in community group. How we listen to the Word in our small group, our men's and women's small groups. How we listen to the Word. Because it is through the Word that the Spirit works. We have to understand the Word. And having understood the word, we must then believe the word. Okay? Not simply intellectual assent. That's important. 
But if we believe the word, and on the basis of that belief, there are things for which we must repent. And conversely, the, the flip side of that coin of repentance is there are things for which we must depend on the Spirit in order to grow. We can talk about this as we did last week in terms of Luther's prayer wreath where when you look at the Scriptures, you, you think about instruction, okay? And then there's thanksgiving for what that passage teaches you. Then there's repentance for the ways in which you have um, disobeyed what God says within that passage. And then there's also prayer or supplication that God would make those things real in your life, that you would become that person that he intends you to be. You can think of it in those terms, or we could think of it in terms of, um, now his name has escaped me, or, uh, Zach Eswine's Gospel Waltz. It's been a while since I've mentioned the Gospel Waltz. Uh, but yeah, this affirmation, this turning away, this confession and embracing of God's resources through the Holy Spirit in order to begin to be walk in the truth. This is reflected in what we see in terms of uh, faith and repentance in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But we also see in the larger catechism, I'm going to some of you are going to be thrilled to hear this, and some of you will be like, eh, the larger catechism. What is that, the larger catechism? I never heard of the larger catechism. Well, that's part of the Westminster standards that we as a congregation believe. And uh, one of the things, question 160 says, what is required of those that hear the word preached? So who does this apply to today? All you. <laughs> okay. It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, paying attention, engaging. Preparation, that means you showed up kind of ready, and that's part of why we do the community Bible readings. I, I've got some texts in there that help fill out what's gonna, what we're going to be talking about within the course of uh, the, the sermon, at least uh, things I intended to when I put that all together. Um, and prayer. Examine what they hear by the scriptures, okay? Being good Bereans and making sure that this connects, that it's actually a true thing that the pastor says as he preaches on the word. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind. Okay, so what have I, I've already talked about that in terms of believing, receiving this tr what is true. Receive it as true as the word of God but not being finished with it yet. Meditate and confer of it. Ask questions of it. Particularly questions of how is this applied to me? How, how I, what in me needs to change? What about what I do needs to change? Hide it in their hearts by memorizing it, which is part of why we've got a monthly verse for meditation and memorization. But you don't have to content yourself with that. You could be a go-getter if you want and hide more in your heart, as it talks about in Psalm 119. And, and here's the key, bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. Bearing the fruit of the word. But you will never bear the fruit of the word 
if those other things aren't present. If you're not praying about the Word, meditating on the Word, conferring with the Word, and most importantly, believing the Word as the Word of God. This is reflected in part in James 1, verse 22. But be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's what happens when you play the religious game. You deceive yourself. If you think you could just listen to it, but it doesn't change anything for you, you're playing a religious game. You're playing a religious game as if when you hear a sermon and your, intention, your thought is not, what is God saying to me in terms of what I need to believe and what I need to do, but them? That was a great sermon. I hope so-and-so heard it. I hope they were paying attention. And that so-and-so might be your wife or your spouse. I don't want to pick on men. Uh, it could be your spouse. It could be your kids. It could be uh, the person three rows up that you're not having a good time with these days that you've sort of got a little conflict with. God is saying it to you too, not just them. We think of this as well in terms of Colossians 3, the reality of community. Well, the, the Word of God dwells richly within us, and so we speak, to, uh, uh, we speak it to each other. We teach each other according to it. We encourage one another. We pray for one another in accordance with this Word. We correct each other as necessary in accordance with this Word. As long as we are correcting people by also pointing them to the Gospel so that they might experience pardon. Correction without Gospel is condemnation. Correction with gospel is evangelism and godly discipline. So you don't, you don't leave that gospel part out. You don't just tell them how bad they are. You remind them of the sufficiency of that ransom of Jesus that he paid. And so Jesus keeps us from religious games through his word and through his people. There are religious games people play or games religious people play. Jesus begins revealing that the temple worship of his day, the faith of the religious leaders of Israel was corrupted and superficial. It was more superstitious than faithful. And therefore, it comes under the judgment of Jesus just as much as that fig tree did. Let us not think that this problem of playing games has kind of gone the way of the dodo bird. The human heart is still prone to playing religious games. And it is only Jesus through his gospel that rescues us from these religious games and makes us fruitful as we engage the, with the Word in a way that believes it and acts upon it. And this is why discipleship is so important in the life of the church and in the life of the Christian, helping people believe the Word and live in light of the Word. So our big idea this morning is that Jesus rescues us 
from only Jesus can rescue us from the religious games people play. Let's pray. Father, not an easy message for us to hear. Because, well, if we're honest, we can lapse into that same kind of thing. We can lapse into churchianity and religious busyness and not really engage with you. Not really engage with the truths of the gospel. Not really uh, engage with faith and repentance in this life. So I do ask that you, Jesus, would set us free. That you would bring friends along our side, perhaps, uh, that can see that we're lapsing into this uh, ritual form of faith or religion. Uh, That when we read the word, that your spirit would be active like that two-edged sword cutting us up so that we, we're free from self-deception. Father, help us to bear fruit. Help us to bear the fruit of faith and repentance in terms of um, vibrant worship, in, in terms of uh, meaningful discipleship, the growing in the fruit of the Spirit, being bold and making Jesus known to people who don't know Him yet. Help us to be a fruit-filled people. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.